We are in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 today, and before we get into Ecclesiastes, as you're flipping there, one of the things that God has really put on my heart, and I'm just going to go forewarning for the sound guy, I, I preached this once to myself this week, and I was really loud, and that was without the microphone. So I'm just going to let you know, if I start hollering, be ready. Um, but anyway, we have this candle up here, and this is a candle that I call the faith candle. And we light the faith candle every time we hear a story of somebody making a first-time decision to follow Jesus. Now, I, I'm under no um, illusion that there are people here that don't yet follow Jesus. We're all on a journey. Some of us have not ever made that commitment to say, I'm, gonna, I'm all in for God. Jesus is my Savior. He's my King. Some of us have just recently made that decision. Some of us have been walking with the Lord for years, if not decades and longer. But the primary mission of the church is that we would lead people who don't know Jesus to come to know Jesus. And it's not as if people are conversion projects. They're human beings, but God calls us as his family to be beacons of love and hope and kindness and the gospel within our lives to bring the good news of Jesus to our streets. And, and that's the mission. So we're going to have this here every week, whether it's lit or not, as a reminder to myself and to you that our primary mission as followers of Jesus is to share with others the good news that Jesus is for our lives, how he brought us into God's family. And we will praise God every time we do light it and we will have stories that are shared. But that, that's the primary reason why we exist here on this earth. We exist to lead people into God's family by the grace, the free gift of Jesus Christ. And if we're not doing that, then, then we probably shouldn't even meet. We should just <laughs> hang up the, the sandals and, and just go wait till Jesus sucks us up into the air and takes us all home. But in the meantime, until he does that, let's share the good news with our neighbors. And on that note, I haven't done this for a couple weeks. Who's got their poker chip? Yeah, I already saw some people saying, I got my poker chip. If you are new and you do not have a poker chip, you can grab one. If you're wondering why churches hand out poker chips, it's because we're all um, addicts to something and we need a reminder. The poker chips are available at guest services. You can grab one after the service. These are our tangible reminders to love God and love others. And on the other side, it says share the gospel and show the gospel. And if we run out, you can uh, go bug Scott Butler. Scott Butler's right back here in the blue plaid shirt. He will have poker chips to give out. He has some just to give out to people that he meets on the streets, and I love it. Uh, and, uh, and nobody, by the way, confessed last week because we had one of our members find a poker chip in Fishhawk on a sidewalk, and nobody confessed that they lost their poker chip. So I'm very disappointed in one of you sinners. Okay, let's pray. Way to play the Jesus juke on me, Don. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's just pray before we jump into God's word. Father, we are coming to your word now. I pray that we approach it with uh, seriousness and reverence. I pray that, that you would open our eyes to see the uh, application and the heart transformation. I pray in the name of your son that you would change lives today, that people in here who don't know you would make decisions to follow you, and those of us who have been walking with you for a long time would be challenged, changed, and trained up to live more faithfully for you. I ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I'm going to read through the entire sermon passage today, and then we're going to back all the way up. So it's the first seven verses. So gear up if you have a Bible. Follow along if you don't. It's up on the screen behind me. Chapter 5, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. 
Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. May God bless the reading of his word. So we've been in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, for those of you who are new, is a book written by Solomon. And it's about this experiment that Solomon is pressing into. Solomon was the son of David, the guy with the rock that beat the giant. Solomon asked, was asked, what gift do you want? And he said, I would like wisdom. God not only gave him wisdom, but he gave him wealth and power and prestige. Solomon ran this life experience that we've been examining over the last few weeks where he basically said, everything that you think will give you happiness in this life, I took it to the end. If you think that money was going to satisfy you, I had more money than you've ever had. If you think that building buildings and houses was going to satisfy I had more houses than you could ever have dreamed of. If you think that having nice things was what life was all about, I had stuff that was so valuable that, that silver became as common as stones. And all of my plates and cups were made of gold. This is Solomon. Solomon threw parties day after day after day for what's estimated to be 15,000 people. And we talked about the gravity, the extremeness of these parties, because some of you, when I said, you know, Solomon really took partying to the extreme, I saw it in your eyes because you're from the South, and I get it. Like in California, we call a bonfire a circular stone object where you light a few logs on fire, and I'm aware that in the South, you guys call a bonfire something that looks like more like a half of a house lit on fire, like pallets and things, just smoke rising up. Um, it's already begun. Uh, the fireworks start going off. By A, it's still crazy to me that you all can sell fireworks here. Not, not because of like the legality of it, but because I've met so many Floridians. Um, but it's already begun in my neighborhood. My, my niece is visiting from Georgia, and last night it's boom, boom, boom. And I think it's cool, but then on the flip side, I'm like, oh, what if these hit my house? Oh my gosh, this is crazy. And then it's only, it's only going to get worse, right? Because people are going to start drinking and blowing stuff up. This is like the redneck, just Mecca. It's just the best. Um, all that to say, the parties that you're about to have wouldn't hold a candle to Solomon's parties. He didn't just get the ribeye from Rick's Custom Meats that was a 30-ounce bone-in, deliciously marbled, fat, juicy steak. He killed, somebody's hungry, oh! He killed cows. He killed cows by the dozens, and oxen, and sheep, and goats, and he feasted every single day. He drank until there was nothing more to drink. He wiped out vineyards, and then at the end of it all, the theme of Ecclesiastes is vanity, vanity, or meaningless, meaningless. All of these pursuits are meaningless, and today, he's switching. Ecclesiastes is part of what's called wisdom literature, and now he's going to shift gears and say, okay, here's some wisdom. Now, there's still vanity involved, but here's some wisdom that I need to let you know because I've been pursuing everything that the world tells me will give me happiness, joy, satisfaction, fulfillment, and it's left me wanting. So here's what he started off with. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now, if I were to ask you, where is the house of God? Some of you would say, well, we're in it. It's right here. And you'd be totally wrong. This building, this brick and mortar, drywall and paint, it's just a building. 
Now, I think it's a cool building because I can come in here because I've got the keys and the alarm code. And I could put on worship music and sing and dance around here, and I do that often. But there's nothing magical about this building. You see, when God started everything, he, he had set up places where he was. He met Adam and Eve in the garden. And then when he took the Israelites out of Egypt, they had the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was this, it was essentially a portal worship center where they would travel from one place to the next. God would stop. They would set up these walls tented. And it's about the size, maybe about three quarters the size of a football field where these outer tents and the different things to worship within. And God's presence would be in the middle of this tabernacle holy place where only the high priest could go, where only Moses could go. And then they went from the portable worship center to the temple adorned with gold and jewels and stone, and God met his people there. Now, craziest thing of all of God's temples and where he wants to, wanted to be worshipped was that it was all pointing towards something in the future. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon is telling the people, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now, not many people guard their steps before coming into a Saturday. So, so like on the practical note, some of us come here just exhausted because we have Monday through Friday where we can party like crazy unless you have toddlers and you just sit at home and watch Dora the Explorer. I'm not bitter. And then on Saturday night you stay up late and you wake up Sunday and I can tell who had a long Saturday night, okay? You're all walking in and you can tell because one of you in the family is chipper and right as rain because you went to bed at like 9 o'clock, you woke up and ate breakfast. The other one of you went to bed at like 3 and you had coffee this morning, but you were in a rush, so you spilled half of it down this side and you had to cover it up with your cardigan. You know who you are. Don't hide from me. Now, now we, we forget oftentimes that we come here to meet the God of the universe. We don't just come to see Jared lead the worship band. We don't just come to hear a sermon. We don't just come to have prayer at the wall. We don't just come to see our friends. The creator of the universe is someone that we come to connect with, and, and not because he's not other places, but because there's something we do here that's unique that we don't do on the other six days of the week, and that is we come together as a church family. S Solomon wants us to guard our steps when we come to be with our church family, to give our best to our church family. Not because, not because out of some religious duty obligation, but it's like any other healthy family. If we're all coming together and we're all exhausted, then we're not much used to each other. Then we're not going to be able to help each other up and encourage those who are broken. Now, the coolest part of this all is, is just following how God did this throughout history because he made it very serious when there was the tabernacle and temple. I've shared this before, the high priest at one point, they would put the pomegranates and the bells in alternation, alternating rows under the hem of the robe of the high priest, and they would tie the rope around his ankle, for those of you who don't know, because the high priest would go in once a year to offer a sacrifice and a prayer for the people. But if he was found to be with sin, God would strike him dead, and he would fall down in the holy place of God's temple. And nobody wanted to go in after him, because who wants to go in after a guy that God just killed? So they had the rope in his ankle with the pomegranates and bells. So if they heard a little jingle, jingle, fall, thud, they'd have guys that would literally pull the priest out because no one was going to go in after him. Now, do you think that terrified people when they were approaching God? Imagine the first priest to do that. The first priest that was like, you know, I'm just, gonna, I'm just not going to tell anybody about this one sin. 
And God's like, don't do it! Sorry, I told you I was going to yell. And they go in, thud. And the guys are outside. Did you hear that? I hear the bells. Do you hear any more bells? Hello! Are you in there? Pulling them out. Or imagine if you're the guy, as they were moving the Ark of the Covenants, that's the thing from Indiana Jones, or the Bible, how, whichever you read first. And... Um, <laughs> In the Ark of the Covenant, as they were moving across the river, it fell, and one of the priests reached out to stop it from falling. He's like, I don't want the Lord's covenant to hit the ground, but God had said, do not touch my ark. Do not touch this thing. It's holding the commandments. It's sacred. My presence rests on it. And the guy reached out to touch it. Boom, dust vapors. You better believe that none of the other priests ever got close to touching that ark. Hey, man, do you remember Bob? That one time he tried to set the ark? Boom, it was crazy. And you know, there's always like that one friend afterwards. Are you going to touch it? Do you touch it? Dad, get close. And then you have the other friend that grabs his hand, puts it in, boom, he blows up too. I mean, I made that story up. That's not in the Bible. But the first one was. It's, it's serious, this thing that we're doing. Now, when Jesus came, he, he came and he lived the life that we should have lived. He followed all of the rules that we could never follow. Some of you think that church is a place for good people to be better. Some people think that church is a place where good people congregate to point fingers at bad people. But, but I need to tell you today that church is a place for beggars. And we are all pointing to the bread of life. We are all pointing to Jesus, saying, I am a beggar in need of Jesus. And here's why. Because as the tabernacle came and as the temple was built, these were all foreshadows pointing to something. God's plan was the plan from the beginning. He's not a plan B maker. God has no lists like you and I have. When I make plans, I go, here's my plan A. Here's my plan B should plan A fall through. And here's my plan C through Z. God says, I have plan A, and I'm going to get it done because I am God. And his plan A was to aim people toward a redeemer. He told Adam and Eve, things are broken, things are messed up, but don't worry, your ancestor is going to crush the serpent with his heel. And then he told Abraham and set up this whole beautiful story with Abraham. You are Abraham. Through you, I'm going to bless the nations of the world. And then when Abraham went up and had to kill his son, do you know that story? It's the craziest story to teach your children. Talk about the worst bedtime stories. I remember when my mom was naming my youngest brother Noah. And I was like, Mom, whatever you do, do not paint Noah's Ark mural in his room. And she was like, why? And I said, because that's the greatest mass murder in the history of the world. And I think that's a weird thing for kids to grow up with, like having that in their wall. That's how Jeffrey Dahmer's are made. Did we do that, Mom? Did we paint that? I don't remember. Okay. So then we have Abraham, and I've told that story to my son. My oldest son has approval issues. He constantly thinks that I'm going to reject him. I am not sure why. I love him. I affirm him all the time. But he constantly thinks that, that he's on the verge of losing my love. So when I told him the story of Abraham and how God sent him to the mountain to sacrifice Isaac the first time, I mean, his eyes started filling up with tears. And, and he said, Daddy, is, is Abraham going to do it? I said, I don't know. You've got to find out, buddy. I didn't realize he was connecting the story to us. And so I'm going through, and then they got to the top, and I do this version where I storytell it to my kids sometimes, and they got to the top, and Isaac was terrified. He had tears in his eyes, and tears were running down his cheeks, and Abraham was terrified. He didn't know what was going to happen, but Abraham was going to do it because he trusted God more than anything, even more than the life of his firstborn son, and he raised the knife, and Jackson goes, no! And I said, hey, that's what God said. You're good news today, buddy. You're in line with the Bible. And then he asked afterward, after I told him, I'm never going to kill you. 
And then he says, this is my oldest son, what if God tells you to? And then I'm like, <laughs> maybe? No, no, he, because here's what I say. He wouldn't. Because that story, you think that's just a cute story or an uncute story? That story, like every story in the Old Testament, is pointing toward Jesus. That story is about a father who God says, sacrifice your son. No, I'm just putting this faith test upon you so that you can see that you can trust me and know me and that I will carry your line on. But there is a father who did sacrifice his son for you and for me. That's the foreshadow. David and Goliath, it's not just about a little guy beating up a big guy. It's about all of God's people being scared to face the giant and God anointing one who was unlikely to go face the giant on our behalf. That's a foreshadow pointing to, G to Jesus. Jesus came to beat the, the giant of sin and death. And you go on and on and on with every story, whether it's the tabernacle being set up the way it was or the temple. God has these shadows, and he's saying, look, this is pointing toward a greater reality. And the temple was pointing toward the reality where one day we would finally be able to approach God without the bells and the pomegranates. One day we would finally be able to approach God without trembling in fear, because when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain was torn from top to bottom that separated where God's presence was, where you would die if you walked in sin, to where now the people would be. There was no more separation. So now when we read the verse of Ecclesiastes, it says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. It's not saying guard your steps in the way where you have to be very careful, like God's up in heaven with a lightning bolt ready to bolt you to death. It's guard your steps in a way that you come here with fear of God, reverence of God, awe of God, not fear the angry dad, fear the loving father who's guiding you toward good things. And, and it's a way of approaching God now where you say, God, I'm gonna give you my all because you gave your all for me. The reason why in, in my family we, we have a rule, it's, it's more my rule, I just say I don't like going out on Saturday nights. And it's not because I don't like going out on Saturday nights, it's because I love Sunday mornings so much. It's because when I wake up on Sunday mornings and I get my apple and I get the banana and I have my first cup of coffee at cafe, I'm thrilled that I get to hang out with my dad and you, my brothers and sisters. It's the highlight of my week. So I wanna make sure that when I get here, I'm not tired. That when I get here, I'm full of energy. That when I get here, my mind is clear and it's not fogged up from the things of life. So I guard my steps when I'm coming to be in what God now calls the temple, which is the people. We are the temple of God. God lives within you and me because of what Jesus did, and then he sent the Spirit to dwell within us. So then it gets crazy. This verse, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. To draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. So there's a sacrifice that you can offer that is foolish. Now, I know that nobody plans on making these sacrifices, and um, the, this book, Ecclesiastes, is part of wisdom literature. So let's just acknowledge that some of us are foolish, okay? I'm gonna share a few stories of my foolishness, and maybe you will relate to some of them for yourself. Now, I personally um, need wisdom a lot. And when I say a lot, this is not an exaggeration. I need God to put wisdom into my life because I naturally, I naturally have been bent away from wisdom throughout my life. So exhibit A, um, when I used to get, when I was younger, I had a little bit of a temper problem, some might say. I would um, get mad and I would punch inanimate objects. Now you would think 
that you would learn at some juncture that punching a wall never hurts the wall emotionally, right? You would think that. And then you would think that after you had already punched drywall with a beam behind it, that punching a stucco wall is equally as foolish. And then you would also think that when, that when your mom or your friends tell you like, hey man, your car smells like it's burning oil, you should probably check your oil. A, a wise person would say, yeah, I should check my oil. But a fool would just drive their first car until the engine exploded. And, and if you can guess, obviously I'm the fool. Now there's a way to act like a fool in church. There's a way to bring the sacrifice of fools in the Bible, in uh, Luke chapter 18, Jesus points to a foolish sacrifice. He compares two types of people. One type is a sinner that says, God, I need you. Where are you? Forgive me. I need salvation. I need mercy. The other one is the not sinner that says, I'm so thankful I'm not like that guy. I'm so thankful that I'm not like this sinner. Now, church fam, let's be honest. Historically, for the last hundred years, we are really, really, really bad in how we interact with other people. And I'm not saying you, I'm saying the collective we. Like, we almost act like we have the keys to a club and that we're shiny and other people are not shiny. And whether we say it out loud that way or not, we kind of come across that way. The collective we, not you, but the we. Where we think that our sin is not as bad as someone else's sin where we think that, that our struggle, you know, like it may be bad, but it's not destroying my life. And, I, and that's a weird phrase to think. Like, well, these people sin really bad. They have, you know, level four and five sins, and my sins are only level one and two. Could you imagine how that must sound before the throne of God who literally turned people to powder for touching a box? Well, you know, I, I don't have adulterous affairs, and I don't, hit people. I don't, I don't curse that often. All I do is, you know, I, I gossip a little bit and I overeat and I look at other people with disdain and judgment. So it's like, wh where are my sins in the stack? Ecclesiastes would tell us that in the moments we do that, we're offering the sacrifice of fools. And it's that stance where we come to God's house and we're not guarding our steps. We're saying, hey, everyone, look at me. Come be like me. Rather than saying, hey, I'm a beggar. I, I need bread. Jesus is bread. Come with me. There's enough bread for you. Because it is easy, family, to offer the sacrifice of fools. It is easy to come to God and elevate ourselves and lower others. When we do that, we are doing a, dis a dishonor to God and to one another because we are members of one another, the Bible would say. Verse 2, be not rash with your mouth. I know I've told this story, I think, once before. When I was a youth pastor, um, by the way, we had this amazing time. The, youth, the kids played messy games, and there's a distinct difference in my heart from when I was a youth pastor. The last time I was a youth pastor was in 2010 and, um, and now. Because as a youth pastor, what you do is you just try to destroy things and hope that you don't get in trouble. Yeah, that's my youth pastor. And as a senior pastor, you look at your youth pastor destroying things, including human beings, and all you're thinking about is liability, allergies. I mean, at one point when they're smearing peanut butter on kids' faces, I'm like, did you check for allergies? And at one point when I see a girl just have her feet slide out from under her on a slip and slide, I'm like, What's, is our liability insurance current? I'm just petrified. So anyway, um, 
It was so much fun. When I was a youth pastor, uh, I was working at a church. It was about a 1,200-person church, big, multi-multi-million dollar building, and I was teaching the students that your, your mouth can get you into trouble. And the Bible says in James, it, your tongue is set on fire by hell itself. So I soaked a cow tongue. And believe me, if you're from California, you've never seen cow tongues before. So this was new to me. I soaked it in uh, lighter fluid overnight. And then I said and during my sermon, you guys, the tongue is lit on fire by hell itself. And I lit a match. And keep in mind, I already had an arson record from when I was eight years old and burnt a canyon on fire. And I throw the match in, and it goes boom. And all of a sudden, things are going crazy. And because I hadn't yet gone through all of my college years, I didn't know how physics and chemical reactions worked. So I said, get some water. And I said, boom. For those of you who didn't go to public school, you know that that just exploded more. Um, and for those of you who went to public school like me, you're like, what does that do? It, it's bad. It's a grease fire. <laughs> okay. Fire went up, black smoke, kids running out crying. We're all going to die. I'm like, we're not going to die if we do. Jesus on the other side. Go, Jesus. You know, this is youth pastor me. And then, um, you know, like the day after, the maintenance crew's like, we're going to have to paint the ceiling. No, no, no. I'm like, ha, victory. The, all that. And you know what those kids never forgot, though? Not one of those students has ever forgotten that your mouth can get you into trouble. <laughs> Not one of them. And some of you in here have been wired like I have been wired. Some of you in here have a similar problem that I have, which is this. My mouth can go faster than my brain can shut my lips. If you don't have that, you've probably been blessed to be married to that. It's like God puts a quiet person together with mouthy. I don't know why. I think it's cruel, but God's sovereign, and I am a peon. The practical nature of this, to not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty, is God saying to us, slow down. This life is going to try to push you and push you and push you, and you're going to get in way more trouble the more you talk. So slow down. You know what I've never gotten in trouble for? I've never gotten in trouble for doing this in any argument, in any conversation. <gasps> never. Never. Now, the person may have said, what were you going to say? And I'll be like, you don't want to know. Someone recently told me that um, when they drive sometimes, their, their wife will have to hand them the love God chip. I think that's great. Because you know sometimes in marital relationships, you can't really tell your spouse they're doing something wrong. Because then it's like, you know, that's just the fuse that lights the TNT. But you can do this and be like, Pastor Ryan handed these out. Do not be hasty with your words. I like this uh, cowboy logic I read this week. Chew on your words and taste them before you spit them out. Mm. Because as many of you know who have been here for a while, the more Dayquil, NyQuil, or Red Bulls I'm on, the more my words seep out. And I have had many hasty things come from my mouth that bring brokenness rather than joy, that tear down rather than build up. 
because that's the goal. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, Ephesians 4.29. So be not rash with your words. Let your words be few. Okay, now here's, here's something. When God, when God comes to you, I think we forget that he is God. In the end of verse two, it says, let, let your heart be hasty, not be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts it in, the, in Mere Christianity. He says, in God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. I mean, C.S. Lewis was brilliant in the things that he wrote. And he's, he's saying here, unless you realize that compared to God, you are nothing, then you do not know God at all. Unless you realize it before God, you are a vapor, then you do not know God at all. I, um, I think it's fascinating to me the way uh, minds of young people work. And I know that my mind did this, but I just can't remember it. So there's this weird phenomenon, and, and those of you who are a little bit older, you've, you've experienced this, and I was just talking about it with uh, one of the leaders at GLOW, and I think she's 19, 20 or whatever, and she said, uh, you know, she was talking about parents and this and that, and I said, you know, in a couple of years, your parents are going to be the smartest people you ever knew, and she didn't believe me. And I don't know if you guys have had that experience yet, but for those of you who have adult children or like near adult children, take heart. When they're 14 to 19, they think you are the dumbest person in the history of the planet, and they will treat you as such. And then all of a sudden, like after they get through college or if they, if they just go from high school to work and they have to pay what we in the adult community call bills, then they start to think, oh my gosh, my parents are way smarter than I remember. And then they have to pay like real bills, because you know, first you pay fake bills, like, oh, you've got to pay for half of your gas. <laughs> And then all of a sudden you pay for a cell phone bill. And then all of a sudden Verizon gets bought up by Frontier and they triple your bill as a bill mistake. I'm not bitter about that either. And then all of a sudden you come back and you think, okay, my parents were way smarter than me. Now that's a microcosm, a microcosm of where we are before God. The fact that my seven-year-old cries because he can't beat me in fighting is a microcosm. He literally thinks he can defeat me because he watched a show called Avatar where people can throw fire and air. So then he says, Dad, let's go fight. I'm like, let's go. And I have this theory that I don't want to let my kids win anything. So I know that that's probably bad parenting. But like even in games, I'm not going to take it easy on my kid. If we're playing checkers, it's to the death. If we're going to fight, I'm going to Spartan kick you in the chest. If, you, if you're going to come at me, I'm going to teach you the reality of it. And then he'll go inside pouting, oh, why can't I beat you at this? Why can't I beat you in soccer? And I'm like, because you're a kid, you have no facial hair. My brain capacity is twice yours. I don't really say all those things to my kids, but two of the three I do. <laughs> Microfraction. God is in the heavens. He sees all, knows all, contains all. 
We see a thread of life, and God sees all of life. We see time as this linear, forward-moving thing. God, in this very moment, can watch Adam and Eve plucking the fruit from the tree and Jesus ripping the sky open at the other end and me scolding my child for not being tough enough in the middle. God knows everything that has gone on. God sees and experiences time not as we do. He is the beginning and the end. He is the alpha and the omega. God has all things under his control. Jesus said there's not a bird that falls from the branch without me knowing and ordaining it so. I mean, if that doesn't make you want to buy a bird feeder, I don't know what does. Because every time the mockingjays land on my fence, it's a reminder that I am a vapor. I am less to God than the tiniest little gnat that bugs me in the summer. The difference is that God says, I love you. I want to listen to your tiny gnat voice. I love that in uh, in one of the prophets, in Isaiah, I think it is, it's referring back to a time when uh, Jacob called himself a worm before God, and God doesn't disagree with him. He goes, I am a worm before you, God, and God literally says, you worm, let me tell you what to do next. I love that. I mean, that's just my sadistic sense of humor, but I think it's cool that God gives us reality checks. So come here guarded. Know that God is God. Close your mouth faster than you open your mouth. Take the cowboy logic and chew it up and taste it before you spit it out. And then lastly, I want to jump to the end. There's a very, very powerful phrase in the end. But God is the one you must fear. Now, if you grew up in the church, whether it was a very strict Baptist-type church or a um, very strict Catholic-type church, you're familiar with the concept that God is waiting to pounce. It's the pouncing God. The problem with the pouncing God is that they started to read the Bible and they never got to the end. They began reading the laws, which are good and for a purpose, and they're to teach us how God has wired the universe and to give us a right standing before God who is holy and we are not holy apart from him. But the problem with the pouncing God is that it ends with the picture of the Old Testament God, that God is waiting for you to mess up and that everything that goes wrong in your life is a punishment for something you did. But Ecclesiastes wants us to know, start with fearing God. And the Bible unpacks what it means to fear God. I'm going to read through a bunch of verses really quickly. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction Verse 9 and 10 of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So for those of you who don't know what wisdom is, um, wisdom is applying the truth in the right way at the right time to receive what that situation needs best for you or another person. So taking the right knowledge applied at the right time in the right way to a situation so that you or someone else can receive what they need best for that situation. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. So Ecclesiastes is saying, hey, if you want to guard your steps, if you want to be careful with your mouth, if you want to enter into God's presence rightfully, hate evil. I know that some of you think um, from time to time, and I've heard this, this is not new to me, the way I've been preaching. You talk about grace so much, you talk about grace so much, talk about sin. And believe you me, do I ever think and talk and pray about sin, but usually in private conversations. Because here's the thing, I could bring up sins, from here, and I do in general, like we all sinned against God, we need forgiveness. But if I start just nailing out sins, 
y'all are going to leave from here feeling like you just got lashed. And, it, and I'm not super smart, but I've been to college a couple of times. I don't think that's what we call good news. I think that's called bad news. And the gospel means good news. But do I ever hate evil? Absolutely. I hate evil when I'm in the midst of doing it. I hate my sin more, more than anyone hates my sin in here. And, and I would dare to say, and this is prideful and probably sinful, that I hate my sin more than most people that I, I've met in this room. I hate my sin. It grieves me. I, I draw out my sin when I have any sin in my life. If I see it, I'll write it out on a piece of paper. I'll write it out on a whiteboard. And I'll say, okay, how, how am I doing this? What am I not believing about God? Why do I keep coming back to this dirty, disgusting act, this sin, this gossip, this dissension, this pride, this whatever? And I'll, I'll write down and I'll fetter out the root of that sin so that I can spray some weed killer on it and hopefully see it die by the grace of God. The fear of the Lord is a hatred of evil and a hatred of sin. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. If you want life, if you want real, true life, start with approaching God with a reverence and awe and respect, knowing that he loves you and is your father. Some of you have been searching for life in all the wrong places, like Solomon. Some of you have been thinking that if you just get to this level of income, to this level of relations, to this level of whatever, then your life will be okay. Solomon wants you to know that if you want life, start by fearing God. Start by approaching God as your everything. Start by approaching God as the source of your living and breathing and sustaining. In the fear of God, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. Uh, Psalm 25, 14, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. You want God as your friend? Fear him. Proverbs 3, 7, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Don't have high esteem for yourself. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I, um, I like watching fights, and I know I don't know where that lands on the scale of sin spectrum or not. I'm sure it's probably somewhere in there, maybe not good. Um, but boxing, I used to love when I was younger. They call it the sweet science. And I know that some of you are like, why watch boxing when you can watch the UFC? And then there's the next level. Why watch the UFC when you can watch the Game of Thrones? Because Game of Thrones is pretend. Um, but, but in fighting, it's fascinating to me to see the skill behind it, especially in boxing. There's such tact and skill in boxing. And you may just see two men fighting each other, but they're, as they're fighting, they've, they've learned how to, how to dip their shoulders when a punch is coming from one way. And they've learned how to shift their hips to be able to throw the fastest, strongest punch they can possibly do in the shortest amount of time. And it's this constant back and forth, the sweet science of boxing. And I, and I think one of the things that we miss in Christianity is that when, when we come to God in pride above all sins. So, so if you want to rank sins, the Bible ranks one of them as the root because it's the same sin that led Satan from the mountain of God. It's the same sin that led Adam and Eve to, to sin against God and break their relationship with him. It's the same sin that roots every other sin in our lives. It's the moment when we think we are better than God. And I get it, we're in church. Nobody in here is being like, oh, I woke up this morning and I thought, oh, I am deity. None of you woke up this morning and rolled over and looked at your spouse and said, ah, oh, I am married to deity. I mean, if you did, we have free therapy here. 
And the Bible recognizes that, which is why in Psalm 14, it says, the fool says, in his heart, there is no God. In his heart. I know that almost everyone in here says in their mind, God is God, I am not God. But I also know that almost everyone in here in their hearts will live in a way that says, actually, I'm in charge. All these situations that are going on, I'm the almighty one. And you don't say that out of your mouth. That's not your head. The Bible says that's your heart. And here's how you can tell that your heart is not fearing God, but fearing something else. When your life gets crushed by certain situations, or when you think that something in life will save you from the mini version of hell that you're currently living in. And I've seen this from from childhood all the way up through the oldest people that I know. In the children, it manifests itself like this. Daddy, can we go to the dollar store? Because if I get this one toy, then I will be happy. Then I will have life. And I try to tell my kids, the fear of the Lord is what you need. I just want a car, daddy. I just want a toy gun. I just want a sword. If I have any more swords, I'm going to just explode with swords in my house. If you ever give my kids swords, I will dislike you and stop praying for you. Because we have enough swords. Then you, you grow up a little bit to the teen years. And, and you don't have a fear of the Lord. Instead, in your teens, what I see is this massive fear of what your peers' opinions are of you. And you could tell, you come, you just eavesdrop on one group of teenagers, and what they do is this. They'll say a joke, and then they look around because they want to see what their friends thought. They'll post a post, and if they get, like, two likes, they'll get discouraged. If they get 100 likes, they'll be like, oh, I'm loved. I mean, think about how silly that is. That it, it, and don't pretend like none of you do this either. Like, the kids just do it on Snapchat and Instagram. You're, you're just doing it on Facebook. But, but that moment you click up and you're like, oh, 10 notifications, I am loved. We're fearing other people. We're giving other people power over our lives that, that don't give us any worth or value in return. There's one person that if we come before us, come before them, gives us all the approval that we need because you go from teenagers to 20-something and you try to be as successful as possible. And you believe that if you reach a level of success, then you f- you'll finally be freed of all these stresses and worries and fears. I promise you, young people, if you're in your 20s, 30s, I've talked to enough 50 and 60-year-olds to know that that's just a lie because they're on the same train. They thought that it'd be the house, but then they got the house, and then they thought it'd be the car, and, and they got the car, and they thought, man, this house and this car didn't work out. Let's get a different house, different car. Maybe I'll get a different spouse. Maybe I'll get different whatever. And then, and then you grow up and you get older and your kids start to get old, older. And you know what's the most fascinating thing about um, this community is that we have a bunch of kids. People breed here in Fishhawk. And you know when people come back to church, they walk away from God in their 20s, they birth a human being, and they look at it and they think, I've got to do something with this thing. Otherwise, it might end up an immoral beast that kicks puppies and hates other children. So they bring the baby back to church. We, we see it all over the country. So they bring the baby to church, and they hand the baby off to, to Mr. Jesse and Miss Donna back there, and they say, do something. Make this child good. I've been bringing my kids to church since they were born. They still need Jesus, okay? There's no magic formula back there. It's, it's that they need to acknowledge that they need Jesus. They're sinners in need of a Savior. They need to fear God who's their loving dad, and let God bring Jesus into their life more and more. But a fool says in his heart, I, I, I don't need God. I just need a, a quick fix. 
I did a quick fix, quick money, quick this, quick job, quick raise, quick family, quick obedient this, quick obedient that. I wish my wife would love me. I wish this, wish that. And all of a sudden, we're falling into the trap of the world, which will give us a 100,000 things to give our allegiance to when God says, there's only one thing you have to give your allegiance to. If you want life, if you want God's friendship, if you want confidence, if you want wisdom, if you want God's knowledge, if you want God to encamp his angels around you and deliver you, if you want to taste and see that God is good, there is one thing that you have to give your allegiance to. And it's not you trying to clean yourself up. It's you saying, God, I am a foolish beggar and I need wisdom from the bread of life. (laughs) Jesus confounded people constantly with his sermons. One day I want to preach like Jesus did and just see what happens. Because he just told stories. He told stories about plants. He told stories about trees. He told stories about lights and lamps, putting them under bushes and over bushes. He told stories that confused people to the point where they walked away. And in it all, the one thing that he's done now for us is that he's given us this story to approach him to get wisdom to get life. And some of us, we've let our storybooks collect so much dust that uh, we've forgotten who God is, that he is God and we are not. We don't even know where to start. I want you to start with this. Fear God because he loves you. Fear God because he gave his son for you. Fear God also because he's the cosmic creator of everything. He is the magnificent master of all. But he then speaks into your life like a loving father and says, as far as you feel I might be from you in this moment, I want you to know that I sent Jesus so that we could be closer than you could ever imagine. That's the God that we serve today. This is the God of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. Now we're going to head into some pretty tough topics in the coming weeks. We're going to head into relationships and money and stuff. And Solomon's going to come after us. And God's going to change some lives. He's going to convict some of us of sin. But at the very end of it all, he's going to come back to one resounding thing. The whole duty of man is this, to fear God and keep his commandments. And God knew that we couldn't do it on our own, so he sent Jesus to die for you and for me and to send his spirit into our lives so that we could be changed forever. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this book. I pray now that that as we prepare for offering, you would shape our hearts to be generous and kind towards you, to respond in our giving by examining how much you've given to us, that we could continue to proclaim the gospel here in this building, and that we would go out and be trained to proclaim the gospel in our streets and communities and neighborhoods. I love you. Thank you for all you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.